Welcome to Cinecast, a Cinedec podcast where we chat with outside-the-box thinkers that are changing the video industry. Take one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinecast, a Cinedec podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. On today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with Charles Dotremont, CEO of Cinedec recounting the events that led to the creation of insert edit software for digital media. On part one of three, we broke down Charles' career at D-Box, as well as what sparked his brain cells to ideate Cinex. We're going to continue that conversation. We're going to talk more about some of the pushback he had in the industry as he created Cinex. Charles, great to have you back on. How are you doing? Great, thanks. Thanks for having me. So the idea of insert editing obviously wasn't new. It's something that professionals in the industry were used to working with tape decks. Um, But once everything transitioned to digital media, that became an issue. And now all of a sudden, the the general consensus was, no, this is not possible. You had the idea for it, or you, you made that second step, which was, okay, why is this not possible? Let's make it possible. What was the turning point that made you want to take this from that idea and that kind of hobby side thing to D-Box to actually turning it into a business and wanting to explore it uh, wholeheartedly? Well, again, it was the need for a digital recorder in the helicopter rather than anything to do with insert edit because insert edit came much later. I needed to replace the tape deck, which gave us a tape, which we then needed to ingest with a direct-to-file recording system, which at the time didn't really exist, or at least not in any usably portable way. This is before the Key Pro or any of that stuff. Um, so I built it out of a shuttle and a capture card and a little monitor and a car battery, and uh, it worked very well. But I wanted also something that was less cumbersome than that and didn't require a car battery. And so the first Cinedec was born, which was our little on, quote unquote, on camera. Today, that would seem a little ridiculous. Uh, it was about six pounds or something. And that became you know, the beginning of all of this. The second stage of that was we had a lot of broadcast customers who said, that's cool, but you know, we want something that can go in a rack, in a truck, or in a machine room that can be used to replace tape machines. So the next step was making a rack-mountable version of this. And as it got more and more use in machine rooms and as tape deck replacement, we often got the pushback that, well, you know, if this thing is really a tape deck replacement, it should be able to do this insert edit thing. So that's really where it came from. So what was the process like of taking this idea for insert edit software and actually turning it into a tool, Um, turning it into something that, had a solid user interface, um, you know, solid user experience, and selling it not just like a tool, but also a product and a brand. Well, that's a very long story. But to begin with, it was a hardware, quote unquote, feature running yeah. in the software that runs on our hardware. Um, and in that, in, in that sense, it was not a hard sell in certain quarters. In a very real sense, the Cinedec emulates a tape deck. So from a user standpoint, in an editing software that could lay off to a tape deck, the Cinedec appears as that tape deck. And from a user standpoint, there's nothing they need to know about it. So that was very clean. The only issue that we had there was because we were editing files, there was initially pushback about, well, 
how do we know that you haven't screwed up the file? And has it passed QC? Various kinds of questions like that, you know, sort of suspicion about uh, because of this idea that a file is this inviolable object. So it took some time with, uh, you know, with certain customers to get past that. And with some, I mean, there are one or two who still don't believe it. They think it's smoke and mirrors. But uh, for the most part, especially in in post-production, where it's mostly used, it's such a useful tool that people have, and it's passed so much QC and it's used for hundreds of thousands of hours of television now. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's not an issue anymore. But yeah, early days, it was, it was some disbelief that it could, uh, it could actually be done. Later, turning that into a software tool, that was where it became more of an issue because we had to work with everybody's files. Right. And although people have a kind of idea that a QuickTime file made in one place is the same as a QuickTime file made somewhere else, it's absolutely not true. And there are hardware recording systems from the early 2000s that recorded QuickTime files, but they are from the early 2000s and things have moved since then. People have legacy stuff and you just have to work through supporting all of it. And that's really the biggest challenge was taking the output of every different editor there is and being able to make these insert edits to their specific flavor of files. Um, And it's something that we continue to do literally weekly as either new products come out and they write their files slightly differently or sometimes we get a new customer who has again, an archaic system that um, needs to be supported. So it's just an ongoing process. And that's certainly the biggest challenge in all of it. Right. Making it fresh enough that it stays up to date with the newest changes and yet is still compatible with, like you said, (laughs) our our archaic workflows and softwares. It's like every software problem there is, whether it's Windows or the Mac OS or anything, that you have to have backwards compatibility as well as keep up with the latest yes and how far back does that backwards compatibility go you know you don't have to get into literally every single specific but um yeah i think a lot of fresh softwares that are coming out are starting to finally shave away some of the like you said older operating systems um uh, you know older uh older devices just because there's no point in supporting them anymore with the broadcast production industry, how far back do you have to go, um, you know, uh, until you feel like you've reached the industry standard? And when do you start to actually shave off some of the support for um, older softwares and uh, older workflows? We really can't shave off t- because we have customers in Africa, for instance, or in uh, some of Southeast Asia sure. who are still recording to MPEG-2 decks Hmm. from Sony from the 90s because that's what they have. And they take those files and they can insert edit to them. Right. So there is a very broad base of customer that we have to keep able to do their work. Right. Uh, Because they're, you know, in... in, uh, I forget, where is it? Somewhere. Well, South Africa, certainly, but a couple of other places in Africa, they just don't have any budget for moving to HD or really any need. I mean, the, people don't have HD televisions or access to 
any kind of HD content. So um, SD works just fine and they're not going to change what they don't need to change. So on the other hand, we deal with cutting edge post houses who have, you know, they, they update to the latest version of everything and they're creating new files and new file types as they come out. Uh, so we have to keep both ends. All right, we're going to uh, step back a little bit, look at um, more of the process of actually creating the software again. Um, I know a big challenge that you had to face, and this is something that I think happens with a lot of innovators in their space, but you have the industry telling you, no, this is not possible, and here's why. Um, and it's always tough maneuvering in an unknown field, but I think it was particularly challenging for you that the industry was pretty adamant that this technology was just not possible. It was just not possible to take a compressed file, um, you know, re-edit one small snippet of it and re-insert that back into the finalized file without messing up the rest of the compressed file. Was that difficult to maneuver? I mean, how, how did you approach that kind of, I don't know, st stubbornness from the industry? You know, that, that kind of just general disbelief that this technology was not going to happen. Well, it's been, it's been a long slog. It's yeah. been a lot of, a lot of hands-on demonstrations, a lot of uh, free demo software to people who, you know, who are kind of, what do they call them on uh, Instagram? Like influencers. Oh, right? got to love them. find influencers who, people who are well-respected in the, in the post industry. And we, you know, Jane has been very successful in doing that. Um, and it has taken a long time. It was 2015 when we introduced Insert Edit in the hardware. And summer, I think 2016 was the first iteration of the software product. So it's been a long slog to get people to believe that, yes, it's true. As I said, we have one or two holdouts who won't, just won't take the, uh, won't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, but most people actually try it. Uh, sometimes very grudgingly or, you know, kicking and screaming. And then they find that they rely on it. We had a major post house in uh, Burbank. We did a, I don't know, three or four present, three or four hour presentation to everybody. And they said, well, you know what, this is great. Uh, but we can re-render an hour long file in six minutes. And so, so what? And then, it turns out that actually what you can't do in six minutes is uh, eyeballs on QC of that same one hour file. Every time you create a new file, you have to QC it again, both in a software QC and an eyeballs on QC to be sure that nothing has been uh, messed up in the new export. Come about a year full circle later, a subsidiary of that company had bought it for their own use and then they are borrowing it or they have taken over some of the licenses because yes, you can export a new file in six minutes, but you can't QC it in six minutes. Uh, they now have many licenses and they use it all the time. So there's a lot of pushback in different ways, I guess is what it comes down to. And did the stubbornness of the industry ever have you feeling like you started to believe it yourself a little bit like wow is this really even possible is it possible to bring this to the industry well I, belief in the in the uh, usefulness of it was 
was validated almost immediately in right. some use cases where, like the voice, as soon as they saw it worked, they were totally psyched about it and became great uh, advocates for us. In that sense, we personally never had any you know, doubt that it was a great thing. And there was enough validation from you know, certain quarters in the early days to make that, uh, you know, we weren't depressed about it. What we were depressed about for a long time was the post, the larger post industry being willing to entertain the idea even of changing their workflow because it has workflow connotations that go far beyond last minute changes to files, which is how it's, you know, it's initially perceived by anyone. Uh, we have post houses where it's absolutely revolutionized their entire workflow. They used to work with image sequences like TIFF or DPX because you can do an, an insert edit to a TIFF or DPX sequence by overwriting a single frame. Uh, that's hugely inefficient in terms of disk space and disk bandwidth and network bandwidth because it's an uncompressed format. And with insert edit to ProRes files, for instance, um, Technicolor Postworks New York was able to totally revolutionize their Americans production because everybody had one ProRes file they were working on, whether they were in color or edit or VFX, and everybody just dropped their changes into that ProRes file, which was, you know, I don't know how many, 200 gigabytes maybe, instead of terabytes upon terabytes of uh, DPX files. So again, it it's, um, depends where you're talking about what resistance there was. Well, clearly the resistance, at least in in most cases, has been overcome and the usefulness of this has really been seen. And we're going to get into that in the third part of this conversation. But till then, Charles, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Cinecast. It's been a pleasure so far. Thanks very much. And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of Cinecast. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes... You can head to Cinedec.com slash podcasts, plural, podcasts, plural, or you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.